Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome everyone to episode 39 of True Blue Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How you doing? Hi, good. Good to be on the main feed. We had a week off last week and a proper week off for because life got in the way and um, back on track that this week and I like it. Yeah, we got a good case today too which is going to be exciting. Uh, we also have some Patreon shout outs. Yes, thank you and welcome to Natasha Podessa. Bill Dalton, Kate Easton, Elliot Mitchell, Kim Moffat, Janine Hines, Brooke Shaw, Lachlan Curry, and Ben Jones, who became a patron a few weeks ago, but the app hid him from us, so we didn't give him a shout out. So sorry, Ben, and thank you. Extra special thank you to Ben, and uh, <laughs> not so much to Patreon. But, uh, <laughs> so uh, we planned on doing our monthly Blue Label Patreon episode last week, but we pushed that back a week or so, as you said, Chloe, um, just to put some finishing touches on that. So that should be out around about now, or very shortly, if not. And on the main feed this week... Kate in our Facebook group actually requested a non-murder case and it just so happened that we had one in the pipeline that lined up with that request. And we get to this point, right, Chloe? You know, it gets heavy on the murder and the sexual assault, so we'll do a, a mystery or, or something like the uh, like the Pongsu incident or something like that. Yeah. And this week we're talking about a robbery at a bank, but not a functioning bank, not a traditional type of bank robbery that you'd imagine with you know, tellers being held up and customers forced to the floor, etc. It's the hold-up of an armed cash-in-transit van while security guards were restocking ATMs within this disused bank. And it's also about the investigation into how the police caught these crafty perpetrators. Flemington is a suburb of Melbourne, five clicks northwest of Melbourne CBD. It's a location with around 8,000 inhabitants, but it joins numerous other suburbs of Melbourne. It's a stone's throw from the city, really, and I think of a few things when I hear Flemington. Firstly, I think of those little pedestrian crossing signs that read, Give Way to Peds, in the typical Australian fashion of shortening everything possible. 
They're in other suburbs too, those signs, but Flemington's where I first noticed them as a youngster. Secondly, and I think of the Melbourne Zoo, which is technically just outside of Flemington, I think, but very much nearby. And third, and undoubtedly most notable, is the Flemington Racecourse, which of course hosts the Melbourne Cup each and every year. We've spoken about the Melbourne Cup once before at the beginning of the Kylie Mabry case, but it's basically Australia's most famous annual thoroughbred horse race. It's the richest two-mile race in the world, and commonly referred to as the race that stops a nation. Pushing up out wider is Hunting Horn and also Young Star in that group with Prince of Aaron and Vow and Declare. So almost five or six across the track in the first 400 metres. The main thoroughfare running through Flemington is Racecourse Road, part of the Prince's Highway. And it would be on Racecourse Road on Friday the 25th of January 2002 that Armaguard cash-in transit security officers Mohamed Tabiat and Rebecca Mitchell pulled up in their armoured van just before 10am. The pair were restocking two ATMs with cash, but the bank branch itself was no longer operational, no staff inside. They just had to enter the premises and refill the machines from the rear. Rebecca was the supervisor on this job, so it was her role to transfer the cash from the van to the bank and load it into the ATMs. Muhammad's job was to escort and to be the lookout for Rebecca and protect her and the cash from harm. So these ATMs, obviously most people know how these work. The front of them protrudes out the front of the venue in which they're installed, but the back is where the actual machines sit and are accessed from. And in this particular building, there was a room described as a bunker that these two ATMs backed into. And that's where the cash gets loaded in and where the mechanics of the machine are serviced and what have you. Prior to taking anything from the van... The pair inspected the old bank building, including this bunker area, to ensure the coast was clear. There was a third member of their crew we shouldn't neglect to point out, and that was the driver, a man named Mark Purcell. He remained in the vehicle at all times. Mohammed took up his spot on the street, scanning the surrounding area as Rebecca made the cash transfer, and right around when Rebecca reached the front door of the building, Mohammed spotted two balaclava-wearing men in dark clothes running towards them. Both of the men were armed, one with a rifle and a revolver, and the other with a sawn-off shotgun. Mohammed yelled out to Rebecca to get inside. She moved quick sticks into the building and into the bunker. Mohammed followed and managed to pull the door shut behind him. But whether panicked or unsure how to use the locking mechanism, or just not thinking clearly, he couldn't get the door locked. The two bandits therefore gained entry, hot on the heels of the two security guards. They were yelling aggressively and then immediately opened fire, unloading a pair of shots, one into the floor and one into the rear wall of the bank itself. Rebecca and Mohammed were inside the bunker and by now were absolutely terrified. The pair cleverly sought cover behind each of the two ATMs and withdrew their service weapons. Rebecca a thirty-five Magnum Ruger, and Mohammed a 38 Smith & Wesson revolver. Both were understandably shaky and found it very difficult to hold their weapons, let alone steady them to return fire. The two robbers from outside the bunker were now bellowing threats and demanding the cash, telling the guards to give them the fucking money and that they were going to die. They kept yelling numerous variations of these threats and demands. So... 
in this situation, you know, it's Rebecca and Muhammad's jobs to protect this cash. And they're cornered in this bunker, hunkered down next to a pair of ATMs, providing them with limited cover, really. The two robbers at the door could either flee, having botched their attempt, or proceed. But doing the latter, and they'd have to move into the doorway. So this is a very precarious situation, dangerous for all concerned. And when you've got four armed people with their respective lives in danger, neither giving an inch, well, there's only one end game here, and that's a firefight. And that's exactly what happened. Who opened fire first, we don't know. But what we do know is that one of the robbers unloaded four shots at the guards, one of the bullets whizzing past Muhammad's ear with ferocious heat and plugged itself into the ATM next to where he was squatting for cover. Muhammad and Rebecca both returned fire, Rebecca firing four rounds and Muhammad his full six before reloading and firing a seventh. Two of these bullets hit one of the robbers in each of his arms. This was the robber who'd fired four shots. The second robber, well, he'd managed to scurry his way into the bunker amongst the volley of gunshots going back and forth and grabbed one of the cash boxes Rebecca had wheeled in and abandoned at the door. I'm not 100% clear on how many of these cash boxes there were. There was at least two, possibly three or even four, but the robbers only got one, and this contained $150,000. They tried for a second, but due to the wounds that one of them had sustained at Muhammad's hand, ultimately forced them to withdraw. The pair of robbers were seen fleeing down Racecourse Road, jumping into their red utility, before driving in the direction of nearby Mulgrave Street. When this had all gone down to begin with, by the way, the driver had taken off with the van. That's his job. So the robbery was obviously called in at that point and police responded pretty quickly and the chase was on for these armed bandits. Right, this is the update. Uh, we got uh, two offenders at least with handguns. We uh, believe the offender was shot twice, uh, we believe, in the uh, forearm. Roger. 416, we found the car. That's on fire in Mulgrave Street. 3.500, we've got at least three to four witnesses here who've chased the offenders. We've got uh, two male offenders on foot who've uh, headed uh, south down the laneway off Mulgrave Street. 610 portable, we've got a trail of blood down the laneway. Permission from the uh, 250 unit to follow that blood trail instead of waiting for a dog received. Roger, uh, Flemington 252, go. 252, permission granted. I've got a basic description of both those males. 16, go. One's around 185 centimetres tall. Second male, about uh, 173 centimetres tall. He's uh, a medium build. He was late 30s to uh, 40s with short, straight, uh, dark-coloured hair. So initially some people saw what was going on and heard the gunshots. One passerby thinking it was actually a movie going on, a movie shoot. But pretty soon, once the guards had come out, it was obvious what had occurred. This guy riding past on his bike actually got a look at the, the plates of the red ute the robbers had fled in. The registration number was DVC 574. Police ran this, and it was stolen. Within minutes, after following eyewitness tips, they'd located the ute in nearby Mulgrave Street, and it was engulfed in fire. The robbers had torched it, fled on foot. Not an easy thing to do with a case containing $150,000. Back at the primary crime scene, forensics would gather evidence while detectives attempted to track the robbers' fiery trail. There was blood on the roadway from where the crooks had fled, 
two pieces of wood, blood on the tiles of the bank, which they swabbed for DNA, hoping for a database match. But there'd be no DNA hits for police. These guys clearly didn't have a history of serious offending, or at least they just hadn't been caught doing so at this point. There was another bold witness who was driving his car down Racecourse Road when he saw the robbers flee in their ute, and this bloke followed them into Eastwood and then Mulgrave Street. He was contemplating ramming them, just like that uh, that local store owner from the Salt Creek episode, Chloe, if you recall, he was going to ram Roman Hines, but uh, this witness decided against it when he saw that the two men were armed. One had taken his balaclava off by the time they hit Mulgrave Street and stopped the ute, but he was too far away for the witness to get a very good look at him. The taller of the two robbers jumped out of the back and began to flee, while the shorter alighted from the cab of the vehicle, doused the ute in liquid and set it alight. He followed his offsider down a nearby laneway before pivoting and heading back towards the ute, now engulfed in flames, and he retrieved a bag from the rear, presumably the cash, and he took off back down the laneway. But he didn't get away unscathed. His arms caught fire while grabbing the bag, so he was vigorously trying to extinguish himself while yelling and screaming, running down the laneway after his taller mate. So clearly they're trying to get rid of any traces of forensic evidence from this ute. That was likely the plan, but it didn't completely work. In their haste, and probably considering one of their injuries, they'd not done a very thorough job with this fire. Police found three firearms and more of these aforementioned pieces of wood in the rear of the ute. This appeared to be the remnants of some shelving or something like that. So this laneway that the robbers had fled down led to Smith Street and there was a noticeable blood trail leading down it which confirmed to police that one of the offenders was seriously wounded but the trail ended abruptly when they hit Smith Street so that suggested the robbers had been picked up or gotten into another vehicle at this location. Police canvassed the neighbourhood and they located a neighbour who'd seen the two robbers out of their window, one wearing a balaclava and one not. And this witness got a pretty good look at the bloke without the balaclava. He was Caucasian, 30 to 40 years old, with short, straight, dark hair. They were able to get this neighbour to put together a face image, a confit of the suspect too. But interestingly, the neighbour had confirmed that the pair got into another car, one that was actually parked on Smith Street and driven away from there. So it was clearly a planned thing. They got the plates of this second vehicle though, which was very handy, but they weren't 100% certain on those plates, maybe 50%. They had OVV442 as the plate, which wasn't matching the vehicle description. The vehicle they'd driven off in was a white Holden station wagon, an 80s model, something like a like a VB or a VC, but this rego was coming up to an expired Mitsubishi sedan from up in Benalla, a few hours northeast of Melbourne. So police had to dig around a bit here and, and try some different number plate combinations based on what this neighbour had seen, and finally they were able to match it up to QVV442, and this was a White Holden station wagon stolen from Middle Park just a few weeks earlier. So there was clearly a level of planning that had gone on here with these two stolen vehicles, the torching of the getaway car, and a secondary vehicle lying in wait a few quiet streets away. They were able to track this Holden crossing the Balti Bridge. It pinged on one of the gantries with the E-tag, or lack of E-tag, the perps had, 
but this didn't give police anything more than a general direction of where they'd headed. So they went back to examine the red ute, where they found rope and riggers' gloves. The guards Rebecca and Muhammad, incidentally, had described the robbers as potentially wearing riggers-type gloves. Police also spoke with the owner of the red ute, who the robbers had stolen it from, and the owner confirmed that the wood, these burnt shelf or wardrobe-type remnants in the back, weren't his. But one thing that was missing was a bunch of tyres he had in the back. They were no longer there. But ballistics and blood test results would come back with even better leads for the police. The sawn-off shotgun and rifle discovered in the ute both had the serial numbers ground out, but the revolver left behind did have the serial number. And very interestingly, this gun would come back as being connected with another robbery in 2001, in eerily similar circumstances. This one happened in Turak, and the cash-in transit guards in this robbery had been forced to the ground, had their firearms stolen along with the cash. This revolver from the Flemington perps was actually one of the guards' guns from this previous Turak hold-up. So these guys have clearly been busy, but that wasn't it. While the blood police found at the scene and trails thereafter hadn't identified the perp, it had been linked with another crime, a burglary of a jewellery store after hours in a shopping centre, just the year before. They had stolen $50,000 worth of jewellery and smashed the display cabinets in this shop, and evidently, this guy had cut himself on the glass and left a speck of blood behind at the scene. So we clearly have a pair of pros here, Chloe, but the police couldn't find them at this point. That would all change when the comfit and the details of the robbery were circulated to authorities, state and nationwide, in hopes of generating leads on persons of interest. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A Crime Stoppers call with info from boots on the ground in the southern beachside suburb of Rye gave police the tip about a fairly low-level offender down there who was rumoured to be holed up with an injury. This guy's name was Brian Gardner. Gardner had a small criminal record involving burglaries and some other low-level offences. It must have been a decent tip because police searched a number of homes that came up as being connected with Gardner, He'd obviously had quite a transient life, but this guy was hurt. You know, they knew he was armed and potentially desperate. So it's a dangerous combination when you're talking about tracking down a suspect who could be one of your armed robbers. Police went through one, two and three houses, all without locating Brian Gardner. And by this point, with the hot local tip they'd gotten, police began wondering if he'd fled or was in the process of fleeing. They cordoned off the suburb of Rye to either eliminate this possibility or to catch Gardner in the crosshairs, all the while maintaining surveillance on a few other houses that he had thinner connections with, might have had known associates or the like at these addresses, for example. 
One house in particular was looking very interesting to police. There had been some activity at this place, and then a vehicle left with two male occupants. While the police had no probable cause to search this house, they did pull over the car considering the occupants and the two armed robbers they were searching for. As we said, these guys were potentially armed and dangerous, so police pulled them over and demanded them to exit the vehicle at gunpoint. They weren't taking any risks. We've seen in the Silk Miller episode how pulling over a pair of robbers can end up. One of the guys got out no dramas, didn't put up any resistance at all. The second occupant, though, remained in the car, but he wasn't resisting as such. Police ascertained that this guy actually couldn't get out of the car. He was uh, in the back under a white bedsheet, and apparently his arms were fucked, according to them. His right arm was in a sling, and the left arm bandaged. Police quickly identified this man as Brian Gardner. They searched the men and the car and found no firearms. And Gardner was promptly arrested on suspicion of being one of the Flemington armed robbers. The other man in the car with Gardner was probably looked at pretty closely as his accomplice, but ultimately this guy wouldn't be connected to the armed robbery at all. Police questioned Gardner on how he'd sustained his injuries. It was pretty clear the guy had been shot. The one in his left arm had gone through, but the one in his right, the bullet was still in there, and he probably had broken bones too. So he was in a lot of pain, a lot of damage done here, but he had no plans to get them treated. He was just going to suck it and see. Gardner admitted to being shot by security guards, but admitted nothing in connection with the robbery at Flemington itself. That limited admission probably wasn't going to hold up for long, but in the meantime, police sent Gardner to Frankston Hospital, under guard, to get his wounds treated and the bullet removed from his arm, taking a swab for him to match for DNA purposes as they did. While this was happening, police searched the residence where Gardner had been holed up. Inside were a number of painkillers, and interestingly, a brand new Harley-Davidson motorcycle, a fat boy. So it's fair to assume he might have come into some recent wealth, Brian Gardner. Apparently he'd loaned $25,000 to get this bike, he said, which seemed very odd to police. So police went and spoke with the previous owner of this bike. This guy confirmed Brian Gardner had come to him around two weeks ago and put the 50% deposit down, said he didn't have all the cash, but would return shortly when he did and pick up the bike. Coincidentally, Brian Gardner's wife arrived back at the owner's place a couple of weeks later, two days after the Flemington armed holdup, funnily enough, and she fixed him up with the remainder and took the bike. This story, like so many we hear from these perps, is stinking like a bag of Dom Burke's finest manure. Gardner was charged at a bedside hearing with attempted murder, armed robbery, and the theft of the two vehicles. So they'd recovered 25000 in this Harley. What about the other 125000 and the other perpetrator? They were still out there. It was only Gardner they had, and he wasn't giving anyone up or anything else away. Brian Gardner was born in Sydney on October 13th, 1964. He lived a transient life growing up with his family, frequent relocations it was said, and his father was quite violent. These factors led Brian to leaving school early in year nine and going into the workforce, and he also developed a dependence on marijuana around this time. Into the 90s, and Gardner got into quite a lot of burglaries and was convicted of many, served quite a bit of time for it. He was a petty crook. 
He'd been married once by this time, that marriage failed, but since the mid-90s, he'd seemingly cleaned himself up a bit. He'd gotten off the drugs, remarried, had a child and was caring for another four of his current wife's kids, all of whom got along well with him. Gardner hadn't escalated to this level of violence before, and one of the reasons he might have been driven to do so was that he was supposedly in debt to some outlaw bikies, apparently. So this links back to the Harley and and why he was buying that bike specifically. So they had Gardner in custody now, the police, but the other perpetrator and remaining cash was still proving elusive. Later in the evening after Brian Gardner's arrest, police found the white Commodore station wagon used to escape from the robbery. It was found in Flemington, burnt out. It was actually left in the car park behind the bank, which was a bold move by who was likely the remaining perp still roaming free. Was this guy trying to simply get rid of the evidence, or was this a bit of a taunt to police? Whatever the case, all it did was give police a whole lot more forensic evidence. Inside this Holden was tyres, more of this wood with the floral pattern, money boxes used to fill ATMs, and blood in the car. This blood would match Brian Gardner. Police went and spoke with the previous owner of the Holden now, as they'd done with the Red Ute. The wardrobe wood and boxes were not his, but the tyres from the station wagon were the tyres from the Red Ute's previous owner. So if we recall, he said there'd been some tyres in the back of that ute that had gone missing. They were on the station wagon now. So while that doesn't seem like a big deal, police have directly linked the two vehicles now, not just Gardner to the robbery, so everything was starting to stack up. Still, who was this other robber? Well, interestingly, or foolishly, that's still up for debate, a guy presented himself the following day after Gardner's arrest at Altona North Police Station, and this man's name was Michael Coates. Coates said that he heard the armed robbery squad wanted to speak with him. This was unusual to say the least. Coates actually wasn't on the police's radar, but evidently he'd heard through associates of some kind that police wanted to speak with him. Coates bore a striking resemblance to the comfit image of the non-balaclava-wearing bandit seen on the Flemington streets. The police interviewed Coates, intrigued as to why he would present himself, and here's what he had to say. I intend to interview you in relation to the offence of armed robbery. Before continuing, I must inform you that you're not obliged to say or do anything. If anything you say or do may be given into evidence. Do you understand that? Yes, I do. Now, I am a suspicious person by nature, and I thought it might be someone I know, and thought, well, if it is, you'll be around to see me. No one came around to see me. Someone came around at nine o'clock this morning and said that you people were after me, so I came to see you. That okay. person, was that a police officer? No. Okay, just so we're not speaking in riddles and we understand, yeah. uh, the newspaper article, who did you, in your own mind, who did you think that person to be? No comment. Okay, Michael, I'd just like to uh, put some allegations to you yes. in relation to why you have been arrested. Mm. Um, it's alleged that on the 25th of January 2002, an armed robbery took place uh, at the disused Commonwealth Bank complex. Flemington, what can you tell me about that? No comment. Did you have any involvement in the commission of that armed robbery? No comment. Do you know any person um, that did have any involvement in that armed robbery? No comment. Michael, was it your intention to answer no comment to the rest of my questions in relation to that armed robbery? Correct. So Coates has shown up, put himself under the microscope, and then said nothing. 
showed up but wasn't prepared to talk. So this was a baffling move, but police had enough suspicion to arrest him anyhow. Coates had burn marks on his right arm, which was consistent with the burns the bandit grabbing the cash bag from the back of the fiery red ute would have sustained. He said he'd gotten the burn in a sanding accident, but examiners were pretty easily able to tell that it was attributable to the uh, car fire. Police also searched Coates' car, and inside they discovered property lease documentation for a house located in Lock Street, Yarraville. Brian Gardner was listed as a referee on this lease application. So there's a few decent links that Coates has here, all of which may have flown under the radar had he not presented himself, because Brian Gardner certainly hadn't given him up at this point. But the final nail on the coffin for Coates would come when police got a warrant to search the Lock Street house in Yarraville. They found the floral wood panelling from the wardrobes had come from this house. They found matching tyre prints to both the ute and the Holden station wagon. There was blood staining, bloody shoes, bandages, painkillers, which police were able to determine Coates had got from a nearby clinic. Neighbours too confirmed sightings of Gardner at the residence in the days prior to the robbery, noting the gold Ford Fairlane Gardner owned, along with him taking a gun case inside. Coates was only arrested as an accessory at first, but upon revisiting the eyewitnesses at Smith Street in Flemington, they positively identified him as the other robber, and he was similarly charged with armed robbery, attempted murder, and motor vehicle theft. Okay, Michael, it's alleged that uh, you and the company with Brian Gardner attended at the uh, Dishoes Bank, whereby you confronted two armoured guard employees. Uh, doing an automatic telling machine refill. What do you have to say to that? Uh, wasn't, mate. It's also alleged, Michael, that uh, during this uh, gunfight, that uh, a quantity of cash uh, in the city of $150,000 was stolen from the guards at this time. What do you have to say to that? I know nothing about that. It's uh, further alleged, Michael, that uh, during this time, uh, you have fled with Gardner to a stolen... Ford Utility, red in colour, was parked out the front of the branch. Registration, uh, DVC 574, what you have to say to that? No, it wasn't me. Michael Coates was born on the 29th of May 1954, so he was a few years senior of Brian Gardner. And, unlike Gardner, Coates had been born into better circumstances. He was able to study at La Trobe University, where he dropped out and proceeded to work a series of random occupations. He was from a good family, it was said. In the late 1980s, things took a turn for Michael Coates when his father took ill from a stroke, and Coates effectively became his nurse. Around this time, Coates was said to have become quite a good golfer too, right around the time of Greg Norman's rise to fame, I'd say, but that endeavour would be cut short when Coates had a bad motor vehicle accident in 1992. This left him with injuries that stopped him from doing much more of anything. His caring ability diminished, he couldn't work full-time or play golf as he used to. This led down the path of alcohol abuse and subsequently some small-time criminal activity. Coates would have a small-time record, probably even less so than Gardner, and for the time being he'd continue trying to work. He started a removalist business, for example, in Ferntree Gully. This was around when he met the Gardner family and befriended Brian through his sister. 
Coates would end up moving to Rye in the late 90s to be near his mother, who was suffering from motor neurone disease, and she passed away before the turn of the century. So neither of these guys appeared to be the worst blokes in the world. Probably not great guys, particularly considering their conduct, and things very well could have gone another way had they shot one of the security guards. But they'd made some poor decisions, clearly, and life had gotten to them both. Both men pleaded not guilty at the trial for the attempted murder charge, for which they'd ultimately both be acquitted anyhow. Gardner took the high road, pleading guilty on the robbery and motor vehicle theft charges, but Coates went for not guilty on all. The judge didn't like the fact that he accepted no responsibility. Gardner received eight years and Coates seven, until these sentences were appealed by the prosecution and new sentences of 11 years were imposed. Gardner also got done for the jewellery burglary we mentioned, but neither man was held to account for the Turak armed guard robbery. There was simply not enough evidence there for that. Rebecca and Muhammad both ended up leaving their jobs as armed security guards. The effects of the terrifying robbery, probably too much for them, and the vast majority of people, I'd say, to remain in that sort of occupation after such an event. Brian Gardner's arm is probably still damaged from the wounds he sustained, but most interestingly of all, perhaps, is the $125,000 that has not been recovered to this day. That money is still out there, probably spent, but never given up by the two culprits and never recovered by the police. And that's it, Chloe. That's the case of the Flemington armed robbery. Your thoughts? Yeah, so as always, I feel for the people involved, particularly Rebecca and Muhammad, um, leaving their jobs following this. I think you cover, you'll cover that a bit in your thoughts, Sean. And, you know, hopefully they got some support following that. It must have been a pretty harrowing incident. And I can't help to think about what would drive someone to commit a crime like this. At what point did armed robbery seem like the solution to your problems? I do feel for people that get to that point, and I'm pretty glad it's not me. I'm not sure if that would ever be my solution, but I can imagine maybe a situation where desperate times call for desperate measures or something. I don't know. That That's kind of what was going through my head after a case like this, but I don't have much else on this one. You? Yeah, I think it's good to break things up with something that's not heavy on the murder. You know, look, obviously these guys did did a bad thing. You know, they've presumably served their time and hopefully moved on with their lives to do something better now. You know, they're certainly not as bad as many of the criminals we talk about, but it was reckless. You know, and it could have easily gone the other way, as you said, I think earlier, Chloe, um, if one of these guards had lost their life. So. It's a very fine line between discussing something like an armed robbery and a murder. You know, we also mentioned this, but if you look back at the Bandali Debs episode um, where they held up a place and, and they shot one of the occupants, but also with the, the previous two police, not Silk and Miller, but the other two that they pulled over and, uh, and shot at them as well. You know, we'd never heard of them, but, you know, these things have a way of spiralling out of control, um, just like happened in this case. You know, it, it didn't go off without a hitch. They ran into trouble. Uh, it wasn't a smooth robbery. Um, it was lucky that no one got more seriously injured or, or even killed. I think it was a really great police investigation, an interesting tale. I wonder how much there was to Gardner's story about the biking money and also where the rest of the cash went. But uh, that's it from me. So, yeah, moving on to happy thoughts. Uh, Sean, do you want to go first this week? Yeah, mine's pretty basic, and I will go first. Thank you for the floor. Uh, but it's basically just that 
we're kind of starting to settle in at the new house now. So it's not yeah, a, cool. you know, a, a massive, massive thing, but, you know, you just get to that point where things just start to feel a little bit calmer, a little bit yep. more normality sort of coming into day-to-day. So that's always a nice feeling. So it feels like proper home. Th- that's it, it is, and, and probably, you know, getting to meet a few people in the local area too, which is really nice. So, And you know where the good larkser is, that's the important thing. I do. We got that one nailed pretty early in the piece, so yes, <laughs> important. Um, and what about your happy thought for this week, Chloe? Um, so mine is that um, no, I won't. I won't write. I won't say what I've written down as a prompt. Um, but <laughs> um, my husband was in a car accident last week, and he's fine. But he could have not been fine. Um, it was a pretty hairy situation. Um, someone t-boned him on a rural road out near where we live, and. It was hectic and he was somehow fine when, yeah, he maybe shouldn't have been. So um, that's probably my happy thought. And also to do um, Luke Marsman justice, I will say something, something about it and then that he really feels like, um, oh, no, I've Bruce Willis. He really feels like Bruce Willis out of Unbreakable now because yes. he walked away from that. <laughs> so that's his zinger that he's been rolling out after this accident. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I saw that. So, no, very good. That was, um, yes, pretty nerve wracking when, when, uh, especially for you. But um, never nice when you hear about someone you, you you know going through something like that. But very lucky. So, yeah. um, yes, like the case, like the case today, it could have been much worse. Yes. So, um, <laughs> Very much a happy thought. It is. And if you want to get in touch, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue Crime Podcast. And you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link's in the show notes. For $5 per month, you can support the current free content we make on the main feed and get our bonus monthly Blue Label episodes. So we're going to be back uh, on the main feed in two weeks. Um, Chloe is having a short sabbatical of sorts. Um, <laughs> going away. Like makes it sound really, really yeah, going away. It makes it sound real business-like, it's not doesn't spiritual, it? It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Uh, we'll be back. Uh, so it'll be episode 40, and uh, we do have a, uh, a relatively big case, a two-parter actually lined up for that. Um, we're not going to tell you what it is. Um, we will tell the people on Patreon, however. So lucky yes. you, all of you. <laughs> <laughs> it is good. And also we did skip over our one-year podcast anniversary because we didn't record, but the 18th of February, I'm pretty sure, ticked over our official one year. So thanks to everyone who's listened, who's supported us, who's lurked in our Facebook group or posted. Um, we appreciate you all so much and it's been a pretty fun year so far. It has, yes, except for the car accident, obviously, but uh, in terms of the podcast, yes. <laughs> yes. Overall lives pending, but the podcast has been pretty good. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, very good. And thank you, Chloe. Happy one year. And uh, we will be back uh, shortly. Enjoy your, your weekend away. And, um, yeah, thank you, everyone. Catch you soon. See you soon, everyone. Bye.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.